to preach on every doctrine that is in this chapter and all of the applications I think it would probably take me to the end of the year and so what I've had to do is I've had to rigidly restrict myself to what was the purpose for these foundation series okay um, I, I just want to uh, deal with uh, certain topics that are relevant to what the foundation series which means I've had to dump uh, a lot of doctrine, a lot of applications that I'm just as a teacher dying to give, but I will restrain myself and will not be giving that to you. Now, last week, no, two weeks ago, in our first sermon, we looked at the creation account and draw, uh, drew out implications from God's authority, his authority over all of creation. We saw that in that text it confronts very boldly eight pagan worldviews, and in place of those pagan worldviews, it gives to us a comprehensive uh, concept of God's authority, his, his uh, authority, his control, his, his uh, expertise, if you will, over everything in life. And so that sermon was basically encouraging us to take God's word seriously on everything that it speaks to, and we saw it speaks to everything. Okay? God's word was over all of creation. It's a comprehensive covenant. Now, while the first sermon outlined eight pagan worldviews that deny the authority of this creation account, the second sermon outlined 19 different theories of creation uh, that I think were also uh, wiggling out from the authority of this passage. Today, I want to point the finger at, of our, at ourselves. Uh, it's easy for solid Bible-believing Christians to be so devoted to a theory, in this case one of the models, and there are several models of six-day creationism, that the text is kind of forced to fit into our particular model for creationism. And again, like with those previous theories last week, our motivations can be good. It could be that we're trying to defend the Word of God, and that can be applauded. But I don't think it's a good strategy to deny certain aspects of God's Word in order to defend God's Word. Um, it does not come off very well to the world. And many times this can be very, very unwitting, just like we saw with uh, the, the, the way that some of the theories were presented last time. I think people many times adopt these theories without in any way thinking that they are compromising God's Word. And uh, it, it happens to any of us. Um, I have in the past uh, many times been all of a sudden confronted by a scripture and I realized, now wait a shake, I have been hugely impacted by my culture and the way I've been thinking about this. In the past, you know, feminism to some degree had infected my thinking and egalitarianism and it's so easy for our culture to think, um, uh, to affect our thinking. But what I want to point out, it's not just the world out there that we need to be cautious about. We need to be cautious about our own hearts, our own motivations, and the limitations of our understanding of the Scripture. We all tend to interpret the Scripture through the lenses of our past experiences, uh, what Scripture we've already studied and what we haven't. Uh, it's like you're looking at Scripture through tinted glasses, and so we constantly have to be challenging and re-challenging our own presuppositions. Are my presuppositions really biblical? Uh, one of the prayers that is near and dear to my heart is the prayer of David, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And another prayer that's very dear to me is the prayer in Psalm 119, verse 10, I think it is, uh, O Lord, do not let me wander from your commandments. 
Do not let me wander from your commandments. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at the danger of compromising the authority of God's word even within the six-day creationist movement. Now last week we finished off verse 5 and we've come to a section that has puzzled many, many interpreters, verses 6 through 8. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so <coughs> oh yes one more and god called the firmament heaven for the evening and the morning were the second day now before we look at what the passage means let me just make an aside a point that this passage i think is a great test of our views of inspiration it is well let me ask this question first was there any human observer of the events that go on in this chapter and I think the obvious answer is no. Obviously, nobody was there to know it. <coughs> and um, yet, what frequently happens with uh, academics and conservative circles is they consider it to be somewhat academically suspect to say in other portions of Scripture that uh, the person, well, even in this portion of Scripture, that Moses could not have had this history revealed to him by a direct revelation uh, Moses had to have had some tablets that were handed down to him from Noah maybe or from Adam uh, previously but uh, it seems to be academically suspect for some people uh, to say well there's large bodies of historical information that the Lord has given by direct uh, revelation I'm, I'm quite content to be academically suspect because I am convinced that even though there are many places where God, by his inspiration, enabled people to gather information and infallibly communicate that information. Frequently, God gives information, historical information to people that there is no way they could have found that information out. And I think this is a, a classic example of that. Um, it is his story. History is not what people observe and see. It's his story, first and foremost, God's story, it's revelation. Now, some authors think at least we need to say Moses got this information from some tablets, and supposedly it gives a degree of plausibility to the first 11 chapters. I think it's just an accommodation to liberal source criticism and redaction criticism, which has infected the, uh, the evangelical community to a large degree. Now, the assumption seems to be that Moses is so historically removed from the events that occurred in Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, he could not possibly have written it in such detail. He had to have been working with previous information that he had handed down to him. Now, let's just assume for the sake of the argument that, that uh, they're right, that he, everything he got, it still doesn't answer the question of how God reveals himself to, to man because all you're doing is you're throwing it back to Adam. How did Adam find out about any of this information? The only way he could have found out about this information is if God directly revealed it to him. And if God had to reveal it directly to Adam, why is it so hard to believe that God can't directly reveal that same kind of information to Moses? And there are so many evangelicals. I just think it's suspect right off the bat when people ha say we have to find out what are the sources that, that uh, people got their information from when they wrote the scripture. I don't think we need to find the sources necessarily unless the scripture itself tells us the sources. Sometimes the scripture does indeed uh, do that. So uh, be, be cautious about 
source criticism. History is true not because men observed it, not because they carefully recorded events that other people observed. History in the Bible is true because God revealed it. It's his story. It's God's story. Now, having said that, that does not mean that we infallibly understand everything that the Bible says, right? Uh, we can make mistakes. There are some things, in fact, most things I think in the Bible are so straightforward, even a child can understand it. But there are some things, especially in terms of the application, that can be kind of puzzling. And I wanted to use the material on day two of creation as an exercise in self-examination. First puzzle relates to identifying the division of these waters below from the waters above. What is the firmament? What, are the, what is the heaven there? And there's different answers for each of those uh, each of those questions the word firmament simply means an expanse literally uh, spread out thinness and so it can refer to any spread out thinness it can be gold that's been hammered out into a thin sheet it can refer to the expanse of the air the expanse of heaven uh, the word itself does not define that it's a general word the word shamayim there's also debate on exactly what that means um, it's usually uh, translated as air or as heaven or as sky. Um, but there are uh, people who say we need to look at the literal root meaning of this word. And again, even there, there's differences of opinion. Uh, but uh, one of the dictionaries, theological dictionary of the Old Testament, says that uh, the Assyrians defined this word, and they defined it as broken up into two parts, shah, place, and Mayim waters, place of the waters. And um, we'll, we'll look a little bit later on how that may or may not help to factor into this. But for creationists who are trying to reconcile this with science, I mean, obviously we know, okay, God separated waters, but when you're trying to reconcile it with science and make a system that applies out there, science is not infallible, is it? And so immediately you're bringing information into the equation that does not have the same authority as the scripture and we can get ourselves into trouble. So what I want to do is I want to go through some of the different interpretations and I'm going to need an overhead man to uh, put these up. Maybe you could lift up the top so they can see the, the whole part there. <coughs> Let me start with this overhead on the hydroplate theory. This theory began in 1681. It was further, and, and it was developed, first of all, by Thomas Burnett. It was expanded in 1705 by Robert Hooke, and then it was massively updated by um, Walter Brown and Douglas Cox in our own day. Now, all of these authors have said that the waters below the firmament are the subterranean waters that uh, you can see You've got the earth crust here, this uh, big, massive earth crust, and then underneath are all of these subterranean waters. And then the waters that are above, prior to the next day when the, the waters and the land are separated, is just one massive ocean that's on top of the earth up there. Well, if the waters below are under the earth and the waters above are above the earth, well, the firmament then has to be the crust of the earth. So that was... Uh, their theory. Um, <coughs> now, in favor of their theory are numerous scriptures which speak of waters under the earth and the flood accounts which seem to credit most of the uh, flooding to those subterranean waters breaking forth. 
and uh, giving firmament as, as a definition, they're not a problem because it's an expanse. It's a massive expanse of earth. It's really the word in verse 8, which is the sticky point. Verse 7 says, Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and then goes on to describe it in a way where it seems like that firmament, that heaven, really needs to be the air, right? Now, there have been two ways that hold those holding to the hydroplate theory, and these are good men, solid evangelicals, two ways that they have tried to get around this. The first explanation was given by Hook in 1705, and he says, really, verse 8 needs to be retranslated. Instead of saying, and, you should say, also. Also, God called the firmament heaven. And the Hebrew could be taken either way. So God also called the firmament heaven, and so he's saying there's two things that are called heaven, I mean, that are called the firmament. Uh, there is a firmament that's also called heaven, and if that is uh, also called heaven, that implies there is something else that is not called heaven. And then he goes on, he says, from that time on, he calls the heaven the firmament of the heavens, verse 14, the firmament of the heavens. And if firmament always meant heaven, they would say, why in the world would he define it more carefully, the firmament of the heavens? The idea of the firmament of the heavens implies there must be a firmament that's not of the heavens, namely the firmament of the crust of the, of the earth. Now, there is a degree of plausibility to that, and it definitely solves the problem of the separation of the waters that many people have tried to reconcile in, in science, and it solves it in a, in a beautiful way. There's all kinds of scriptures that speak of vast amounts of waters that were under the earth. It speaks of those waters bursting forth under the incredible pressure that they must have been on. And here you see it bursting up because of a, a vent that God made uh, up into the air. They appeal to Second Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. Very interesting verse on their theory. It says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And they say that Peter is attributing the flood to the creation waters. And specifically, he divides it into two parts, the waters that the earth was in and the waters that the earth was standing out of. Okay, And so, again, there's a degree of plausibility. And the biggest objection is that verse 8 just does not seem to fit. He's just finished talking about this firmament that he's created, and verse 8 says, and God called the firmament heaven. And it is much more natural to take that phrase, that day, in the same way that you take the other days. For example, if you take a look at verse 3, this is day 1. God says, let there be light. There is light. And then in verse 5, the light does the same thing in verse 9. God says, let the dry land appear. It appears. And then in verse 10, God calls the dry land earth. And so God's pattern is, he, crea he, he says, let there be something. It comes into existence, then God names it. Well, apply that to uh, day 2. He says in verse 6, let there be a firmament. In verse 7, the firmament comes into existence. And in verse 8, that firmament is named, and it's named heaven. So it just doesn't seem like he is talking about a different firmament all of a sudden in this next phrase. And that's one of the reasons why the first developer there, Thomas Burnett, backed off from uh, this theory uh, after a while. It just seemed a little bit too awkward, uh, awkward to hold to. And uh, I think it is a theory that can be salvaged, and it can be salvaged if, 
if the literal interpretation of place of the waters is given instead of heaven. Then the whole phrase applies to, uh, to day two. And uh, you could maybe even uh, accompany it with Humphrey's uh, theory of the separation of the waters, maybe a couple of other theories. I'm not going to get into solving this and trying to reconcile it with Scripture. What I want to do is just show, as people are wrestling with various issues, how their theory begins to drive them. Later advocates of the hydroplate theory are so driven by their six-day creationist model, they do something very crazy. They recognize that such an interpretation as Hook gave is rather jarring, so they feel they just cannot go down that road. And so what they do is they either say it's possible that something got inserted into the Hebrew text, or as in the case of Cox, that's just not scripture. That definitely got inserted into the text. Now, these are not liberals that we're talking about. These are evangelicals who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Dr. Walter Brown isn't dogmatic. He suggests it may simply mean that we don't understand the Hebrew. Now, that's a good take, okay? Saying, I don't know, is a great way to go. But he gives us a second possibility that perhaps this isn't the Hebrew that God inspired or gave, that something got inserted into the text there's no evidence of any textual corruption that happened and douglas cox is much more dogmatic he says under antiochus epiphanes that compromised hebrews did not like this material aspect and they immaterialized what god had made very material and they put it as heaven as opposed to making the firmament being the crust of the earth and again no textual evidence but this is just shocking to me that evangelicals would even suggest this now, I'm not sure. I'm pretty positive that Walter Brown would uh, get the heebie-jeebies over what Douglas Cox did. I mean, he, I think he went way beyond Walter Brown. And I don't want you to see him as a liberal, okay? This guy really does hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. This is a textual, critical type of an issue. And yet you can see, even in his, even in his approach, by inserting that little phrase there, that he is more willing to say that God did not preserve his text than to give up his theory his theory is really driving uh, his interpretation and what i want to say is the scriptures must drive our theories not the theories our interpretation of the scripture hooks uh, trans retranslation of that phrase much better but i think it's still evidence is an exegesis driven by his model of six-day creationism now as i said i think there is a way out of that dilemma if you happen to hold to that particular model of creationism and i could share that with you later uh, but uh, at this point, I'm just saying, let's be careful. Let's be careful. It can, if it can happen to top-notch biblical scholars like those people, it can happen to any of us. We've got to make sure that we don't shoehorn the scriptures into what we think that they should say. The second theory is called the vapor canopy theory. Now, actually, there's quite a number of different uh, vapor canopy theories. Uh, some of them... Uh, give uh, a theory that would completely block off the uh, moon and the stars. Well, actually, let me just show it to you on here. Here's a, an artist's rendition of what an ice canopy would look like at the flood when it's breaking up. You can see the big holes. Maybe those are asteroids there that are broken through and are crushing the mammoths. You know, the mammoths that are found, they're all puzzled. Why are they, why does it look like there's a big, huge weight that came on them and all, all their legs are crushed down into the ground? And so this is his rendition of what that would look like. Then there's um, 
there's other examples that would be like some of our other planets, either rings or clouds that uh, circle around uh, the, the, the planet and provide some kind of, you know, in the Earth's case, some kind of uh, water that is there. So there's a number of different types, but this is the most popular one. It's the, it's the uh, vapor canopy theory. And uh, let, me, let me just very quickly go through uh, what they hold to. I used to hold to this up until this past week, and there was a scripture that blew it out of the water. <laughs> and, and I tentatively held to it. I thought, you know, there seems to be evidence for all of these different models. And this past week, it wasn't just the scientific arguments. There's seven scientific arguments against the canopy theory that have made people really think, boy, this maybe is not the way to go. It was one scripture, and I'll share with that, that with you later. But anyway, Morris and more recently Dillo have very ably ar argued that God placed a vast amount of water above, uh, the, uh, above the atmosphere, um, uh, above the stratosphere, um, possibly as high as the ionosphere, uh, which is a high uh, temperature area that stretches way out into space. And this theory would allow vast amounts of water vapor to be up there, enough to deluge the earth in 40 feet worth of water. And uh, because of the high temperatures, it would be kept in a clear, transparent uh, vapor state that the sun, the moon, the stars could shine through, although some people have questioned that, you know, with the amount of water up there, whether that could actually happen. But in any case, it seems to fit on the surface, verses 14 and 15, that indicate God gave the lights there for seasons and for us to be able to see those stars and calculate by them. Uh, there are a number of canopy theories where that would not fit, but at least this one, I think, fits there. Now, some have objected that this theory would double the atmospheric pressure and provide way too much oxygen and way too much, um, what is it, a nitrogen, I think, is the other one. Morris responds, no, actually, hyperbaric chambers have shown to be beneficial to, to men. So there are scientific arguments back and forth that people uh, give. Uh, White Lawn Barrow, our six-day creationist, who claimed that this vapor canopy would make the Earth's temperature way too hot, over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Dillo has responded, I think, fairly well, but he's had to reduce it from 40 feet of water down to six feet of water. Uh, that would deluge the earth. And if you want to look at uh, a paper that just summarizes some of the arguments I can give, though, I think the worst blow comes from Psalm 148, verse 4, which long after the flood, long after the canopy is supposedly completely dumped out onto the earth, is precipitated, it says, Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Now, that is a clear pointing to the language of Genesis chapter 1, and so whatever separation of waters that you believe existed in chapter 1, this verse says it continues to exist in the time of David. And for me, that just kind of, it doesn't totally wipe out the canopy theory because there could be aspects of it, but it's definitely not the separation of waters that Genesis 1 is talking about. There's still waters above the heavens. Okay, um, now, having said that, unless you're willing to retranslate and say that the heavens in that verse or the earth's crust or the place of the waters, there's only two theories that fit at this point. Somebody else may come up with another theory, but the cloud theory, which I'm strongly leaning towards, or expanding universe theory of Russell Humphrey. Now, let me give you another outline here. Um, Humphrey's expanding universe theory believes that the heavens of verse 1 
were space, basically. And so on uh, day one, first of all, there was this interstellar space, even though there were no stars in it that was created, and then there's a space beyond that that stars won't be in, and then there's the third heaven uh, that was created all on uh, day one. Then on this uh, day one, in his space number one is a massive white hole in which a massive ball of water was created. When I say it's a massive ball of water, uh, that ball that's up in the middle up there, uh, he says is two light years in diameter. So uh, that's very massive, two light years in diameter. And then the event horizon is, um, uh, let's see here, half a billion um, light years away. Now, to quote Humphreys, whose whole theory presupposes Einsteinian physics, which I, well, I think is in question itself, because Einsteinian physics is based on the idea that light is a constant. Y if light can increase or decrease in speed, you kind of blow that out of the water. But anyway, Humphreys says, because the enormous mass of the whole universe is contained in a ball of relatively small size, the gravitational force on the deep is very strong, more than a million trillion g's. This force compresses the deep very rapidly toward the center, making it extremely hot and dense. The heat rips apart the water molecules, atoms, even the nuclei, into elementary particles. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Thermonuclear fusion reactions begin, forming heavier nuclei from lighter ones and liberating huge amounts of energy. As a consequence, an intense light illuminates the interior, breaking through to the surface and ending the darkness there. And then he goes on to describe that ball rapidly expanding out of the white hole into the universe, leaving gases that will later become suns, that God will form into suns, and uh, then eventually forming a barrier that's pictured down here around our, you know, our bounded universe. And then beyond that, there is another space that who knows what's in it. He just says that's, that's heaven number two, and then there's, uh, the, the third heaven, which he thinks is in, in another dimension. Now, what's fascinating about this theory is that it allows, using Einsteinian physics, it allows creation to have occurred from Earth standard time uh, to be 6,000 years old, but from another part of the universe measured from the outer limits of the, the universe, it would be billions of years old, even though it's all created at the same time as it's expanding out. And that's because time is affected by gravity on Einsteinian physics. Anyway, you, you'll have to read that. Uh, it, is, it is pretty interesting. And I think that his theory answers most of the scientific problems. It answers most of the problems exegetically. There's two problems, though, that I think are not answered satisfactorily, and that is, what is heaven and what are the firmament? And uh, I want to deal with that uh, uh, quickly. And again, I'm not going to try to resolve uh, everything. I think his theory could be uh, rescued if some adjustments are made. But anyway, Humphreys says that the atmosphere is not the first heaven. And I can see why he's forced to that, because there could be no atmosphere on day two when these waters are being separated. He says it's not the atmosphere. And he agrees with most interpreters that the three expanses are the three heavens. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Keep your finger in... Well, it's easy enough to turn back to Genesis chapter 1. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, and this is describing, some people think, an autobiographical remark of, um, uh, of Saul, maybe when he was 
uh, left as dead after he had been stoned. But whoever it is catches a glimpse of the heaven that we go to when we die. And I want you to notice in this verse what he describes that heaven as. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. The heaven we go to when we die is called the third heaven. Now, all of these six-day creationists agree with that definition. So we've already ruled out which the third heaven is. There's only two other heavens that we need to come to, and that's where the controversy arises. Look at Genesis 1, verse 20. Humphreys tries to use this to demonstrate that the atmosphere can't be heaven since the birds of the air are flying against the face of heaven or across the face of heaven. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. There's any number of scenarios you could have there. You could even have two firmaments and two heavens there. Uh, Vultures are known to have flown 25,000 feet in the air, but any bird looking down would be looking on atmosphere, looking up would be looking at space, would be between two heavens, as it were, would be flying across the face of two heavens. But let's just say, okay, Humphreys, you're 100% right. The only heaven that verse 20 is talking about is interstellar heaven, and birds aren't in that heaven. You still haven't proved anything. You haven't proved that the atmosphere is not the first heaven. And what I want to do is I want to give you five proofs that the first heaven is the atmosphere. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Best to start where the first occurrence occurs of of a word. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. That birds of the air phrase is of hashemayim. Okay, it's literally the birds of heaven. And heaven is sometimes translated sky, sometimes air, sometimes heaven. But here is a, a case where the birds of heaven or the birds of the air is clearly referring to atmosphere and that's why it's translated as air here many times it's translated as air then take a look down at verse um, 28 again you see birds of the air then in verse 30 birds of the air of hashemayim literally birds of the heavens now that hebrew phrase occurs 87 times in the old testament that's a lot of times for humphreys to miss And he might not know Hebrew, but the interesting thing is that phrase is translated in the New King James at least 31 times as being birds of the heavens or birds of heaven. And with a massive amount of information like that, you know, you'd say, okay, how can a person miss that? Obviously, the birds aren't interstellar birds, right? The only heaven that's left is the atmospheric heaven. And so that's the first proof. Birds fly in something called heaven. Second, clouds are said to be in heaven, Deuteronomy 4.11. That's atmosphere. Third, rain is said to fall from heaven, Genesis 8.2, Deuteronomy 11.1. Again, obviously atmosphere. Fourth, 30 times wind is said to blow in the heaven. One passage says the east wind was caused to blow in heaven, Psalm 78, verse 26. Another passage says the four winds of heaven. 30 references to the wind of heaven. Same Hebrew word, ha-shamayim. And the ha is just the, okay? Shamayim is the word. And there are many other atmospheric conditions being described as being in heaven. Now, with such overwhelming evidence, the only thing I can see is either they just were ignorant of the Hebrew, just missed that completely, or they're misusing the text. 
because I don't think you can possibly say that the atmosphere is not heaven. Possibly you could say, you know, that there is uh, the first the first place of the waters, Shamayim, would be the crust, and then the next would include the atmosphere and all the way through the stellar uh, atmosphere and then the third heaven. But to leave out uh, the atmosphere, I think, is impossible. I think that's a fatal flaw in, in his... Well, it's not fatal because it could be resurrected, and I'm not going to tell you how. Um, I'll talk with you about that anywhere, I- 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 another time. Anyway, in terms of our search, any theory that denies that the heaven can be the atmosphere needs at least revision. Now, that means there's only one other atmosphere to account for, and I believe it's the interstellar atmosphere. Over and over again, Scripture speaks of the stars of heaven. It speaks of heaven above the clouds. Okay, that seems to rule out uh, there being any other. That seems like there's two at, uh, things there then. There is the atmosphere and the heavens, and the heaven and the heavens of the heavens. Look at verses 16 through 17. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And so it speaks of stars being placed into this space called heaven. And by the way, the word firmament is used in exactly the same way of all three uh, places. It's uh, an expanse. And so it's used in verse 7 the expanse of the atmosphere. It's used in verse 20, the expanse of interstellar uh, space. And Ezekiel 1, four times, uses the word firmament to describe the expanse of where we are going to be when we die. And so we've demonstrated what the three heavens are, what the three firmaments are, and our theorizing, I think, has got to conform to that. Now, there are other theories, but let me just deal with one more and uh, be somewhat even-handed here. And this is the cloud theory. It's the simplest one. It's not without its problems either, but uh, I think we need to do a ton more study on day two. I think day two is key to developing something that will be able to integrate science. And I have a feeling, and I could discuss this with you some, that it's actually a mixture of two or three of these, these theories that I think would beautifully come together. But in any case, on this theory, the cloud theory, uh, they say that the firmament of verses 6 through 8 is the atmosphere created on day 2. They would insist this cannot be the second heaven. And here's a key argument, by the way, we should have included before. It cannot be the second heaven because in verse 1, the second heaven had to have been created because the earth was already placed in it. Uh, interstellar space is not nothingness. Interstellar space is created by God. It is somethingness into which the planets are placed, into which the stars are placed. And so think about that. If God created the heavens and the earth on day one, and he's already placed the earth into there, then there's only one other heaven that can be made on day two, and that's the atmosphere. Because we've already seen the third heaven's made, the second heaven has to have been made interstellar, and so that leaves the atmosphere to be made at this this point. Okay, um... On this theory, when God separates the waters beneath from the waters above, he is simply adding the necessary energy or heat to create evaporation. Okay, so the hydrologic cycle separates waters from the earth to waters that are above the atmosphere. The clouds are above the atmosphere, some of them as high as 90,000 feet in the air, uh, according to 
uh, uh, scientists. So it's not unreasonable to speak of the clouds as being above the expanse of the atmosphere, the ocean under the atmosphere. And since we know that the mountains are higher now than they were before the flood, uh, the atmospheric conditions needed for stor uh, storms and to precipitate water could have accommodated much more cloud cover. Let me just deal with three biggest objections against this interpretation. First, it's objected that the clouds are in the atmosphere, not above the atmosphere. And an easy response is, of course, they're uh, in, but they're also, to some degree, above the atmosphere. 90,000 feet, you know, that's above <laughs> a good chunk of atmosphere. But leaving science completely aside, the parallelism of Psalm 108, verse 4, I think, requires the interpretation that clouds are indeed above the heavens. It says, for your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. So anyway, I don't think that's a serious objection. The second one is that if all of the water in the clouds today was precipitated, it would only create a flood of one to two inches, not enough to deluge the earth. And their response would be threefold. First, that assumes that the present topography of the ground is the same as before, and that's contradicted by the scripture. Second, scripture affirms that even post-flood, clouds contain lots of water from a biblical perspective. For example, Jeremiah says twice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Okay, this is not, this is not, you know, water way out there beyond the universe. A multitude of waters in the heavens that's from what? From the vapors that ascend from the earth. That's Jeremiah 10:13 and 51:16. Third, the flood accounts in chapters 6 and 7 don't say that rain destroyed the earth. It says the floods destroyed the earth. Okay, the rain contributed sun, but Genesis 7:11 says the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and so they contributed hugely to the flood and probably hugely to the rain. The last major objection to the clouds interpretation is Genesis 2. Uh, take a look at 2 verses 5, um, halfway through, the second sentence in verse 5. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, canopy theory people say, well, that implies that there was, prior to the flood, no rain. Uh, that can be explained. No rain can be explained by the canopy theory. It cannot be explained by the cloud theory. And I think the cloud theory response would be fourfold. First, you can have the clouds forming since day two without having rain right away. Other atmospheric conditions need to come into play before rain can fall. Uh, second, where in the world do you read the flood in there? It doesn't say till the flood. It says Adam hadn't been created yet. Okay, so we're not even to day six. And it says rain had not fallen yet. And so God, what he is doing is he is, he is uh, uh, making the conditions such that the rain will fall on the fields that are going to be cultivated after we have a man to cultivate those fields. But look at verse 6. That implies that the hydrologic cycle has already begun, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. They would say that that indicates evaporation, first of all, and during the next two or three days, the evaporation is sufficient that it produces dew on the ground, and it's also producing clouds in the air, but there are not the other processes like uh, um, uh, massive uh, air movements and things like that to create the uh, rain and the storms that would later on be needed. And so I think that's the most ordinary, straightforward uh, interpretation of that verse. Now, that's not to say that the other theories do not have things to contribute. 
nor is it that uh, 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 another theory cannot come up to reconcile that. But the main reason I went through these theories is to use day two as a caution in our handling of the word of God. Uh, There are tendencies of some people to try to shoehorn everything into, every scripture into their position, and you cannot hold theories to the same standard that you would hold the scriptures themselves. A theory... Uh, Six-day creationist theory is, of its very nature, going to not be absolute because you're taking the absolute word of God, you're trying to link it with science, which is not absolute, and so those things are going to be changing, and yet some people take it as uh, having exactly the same standard. And I think we are hypocrites if we criticize the day-agers for shoehorning scripture based upon their understanding of science, shoehorning scripture to fit, if we do the same thing as six-day creationists, I think we're hypocrites if we do that. Now, each of these models, I think, have a lot that uh, they can offer, but I'm going to close without bringing any closure, which I don't like to do. And uh, there's tons of positive applications that we can make. I'm not going to bring any more criticisms, I don't think. We're going to be bringing some of the positive applications and finishing the chapter off next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your word and even on passages that we do not understand we thank you that you have given your holy spirit to bring illumination and i pray father that we would not come from outside with systems that we try to force your scripture into but i pray father that we would tremble at your word that we would seek to uh, uh, submit ourselves to what your word has to say in any time that your word brings correction that we would be quick to change we love you we love your word it is a light to our feet and we want to understand it more and more carefully and so we pray these things in jesus name amen